0: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, I'm David Cochran, and this is the Power and Politics Podcast for Wednesday, October 25th. On the pod today, more countries are joining the call for a humanitarian pause in the Israel-Hamas war. The UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights in the Palestinian Territories makes her plea for a halt to the war and will ask Israel's ambassador to Canada if this is something his government will consider. Plus, in an address to his nation, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the military is preparing for a ground invasion of Gaza. An expert in military and security affairs in the Middle East explains just what that invasion could look like. We begin in Israel, where Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says the relentless airstrikes on Gaza are only the beginning. He promises a ground invasion is coming, arguing his country is in a fight for its existence. The CBC's Susan Ormiston joins us now from Jerusalem. So Susan, we heard from Benjamin Netanyahu tonight. What was his message to Israelis?
1: Well, there are a lot of big questions swirling around this war right now and he didn't answer any of them. Chiefly. Uh, when are they going to launch a ground incursion? The IDF soldiers are massed up against that border at Gaza. He would only say that it will happen and that his cabinet is unanimously behind the decision on timing, but he would not give any details about when it would happen or how big a force it would be. Secondly, he had nothing to say about calls internationally and from many aid agencies and locally, of course in Gaza, for a pause, a pause to allow humanitarian aid into Gaza through that southern border with Egypt. He said absolutely nothing about aid going to uh, going to Gaza. What he did talk about was that Hamas must be annihilated. He said that over and over. He also was appealing to Israelis who are now looking down the road and seeing a very long war. They're displaced here and in Gaza, out of their homes, and it's sort of settling into, okay, we have a war, but what do we do? Do we go back home? How do we go back home? Who's gonna pay for our accommodation? So Benjamin Netanyahu was trying to appeal to Israelis and say, we've got control of this. We will have details forthcoming on what the next few weeks look like. But also he did say that they were doing everything he could do about hostages. And we heard some interesting things from the foreign ministry in Qatar today. Qatar is acting as an important mediator in negotiations. The prime minister said that talks were intense. They are progressing. There have been some breakthroughs, his words. And he is somewhat optimistic. We don't know what that means. There is a lot of talk that there's some kind of discussion going on about trying to get a large group of hostages released. And, of course, that's one of the factors on that timing of the southern border. We were out at the southern border again today, David. It's a very active area. We saw and heard artillery going into Gaza. We saw smoke bombs dropped along the border, uh, perhaps to... Uh, Camouflage any military activity that was going on there. So we know there have been targeted raids across the fence into uh, Gaza, but so far uh, no large-scale ground offensive.
0: No large-scale ground offensive, Susan, but also no large-scale humanitarian relief, which more and more countries and aid organizations are calling for uh, to help the people in Gaza. So what is the latest from where you are on the humanitarian crisis inside Gaza?
1: you know that we can't get in there which makes it more difficult but we we get enough video and personal uh phone calls out that we know the situation is deteriorating rapidly a lot of people uh, being bombarded pretty consistently uh, buried in rubble we saw some video today of a man pleading to know whether his wife and child had survived as rec- rescuers tried to dig him out We know that several of the hospitals have uh, ceased operating because they don't have the ability to continue. We know that the UN aid agency, which has been warning for days that it would have to curtail operations, is at that deadline tonight. No fuel, significant fuel deliveries were made into Gaza and they can't operate the hospital generators without that. So even something as small Or as regular as a bakery, David. Mm. The aid agencies use bakeries inside Gaza to supply the food, and those bakeries can't operate without fuel. So it's desperate, it's getting worse, people are sleeping 57 to a house, sometimes 100. Uh, It's a very difficult situation, and so far there doesn't seem to be a significant break in that crisis that's really taking control of Gaza.
0: Susan, uh, thank you so much as always. That's the CBC, Susan Ormiston in Jerusalem. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said today that Canada supports Israel's right to defend itself according to international law, but he is expressing deep concern about the humanitarian situation in Gaza.
2: There are ongoing diplomatic conversations about consideration of humanitarian pauses, and that is something that Canada supports. Desperately needed humanitarian aid must reach vulnerable Palestinian civilians in Gaza, and Canada is working closely with partners to build a humanitarian corridor. Hamas must immediately release all hostages, and Canadians and foreign nationals who wish to leave Gaza must also be allowed to do
0: so. Hospitals in Gaza say they are on the brink of collapse. Food, water, fuel, and electricity supplies are in short supply for many Gazans. In Washington, U.S. President Joe Biden acknowledged the challenge Israel's military is facing, but he insisted the laws of war must be followed. Hamas does not represent the vast majority of the Palestinian people on the Gaza Strip or anywhere else. Hamas is hiding behind Palestinian civilians and is despicable and, not surprisingly, cowardly as well. That does not lessen the need for to operate in a line with the laws of war. For Israel has to do everything in its power. Israel has to do everything in its power. As difficult as it is to protect innocent civilians. Edo Moed is Israel's ambassador to Canada. He joins me now. Ambassador, thanks for coming back on the show.
3: Thank you for having me, David.
0: You've heard there the leaders of Canada and the United States, they're not calling for a ceasefire, but there is a push for humanitarian pauses in the fighting to allow aid into Gaza. Is Israel prepared to do this if Hamas also agrees? So
3: let me just at the outset uh, mention the humanitarian situation of the 200 more hostages that are held who knows where, uh, in what conditions, somewhere in the Gaza Strip where no one up until now had access to, and nobody knows what's their fate. Uh, we only know that they are held by the criminals, the, the monsters of Hamas, who um, performed all these horrible atrocities, including rape and mutilation of people uh, alive. So I think we are very, very worried about that. As far as Gaza Strip is concerned, and the effort to uh, alleviate the conditions for Palestinians. We must remember, Israel is at war. Israel is fighting against Hamas, terror organization that perpetrated the worst monstrous act against uh, Israelis since it's the the country was uh, was established, and so. While doing that, of course, we take into consideration that we have to uphold international law, which we do very, very strongly and very transparently. And in that regard, of course, there have been convoys coming into the Gaza Strip. Up until now, there have been uh, tens of trucks going in and on a daily basis the last four days. And let me just discuss with you the numbers, because your report had mentioned a few numbers what, of what is happening in the Gaza Strip. Uh, according to our information which is based on constant contact with international organizations uh, they are at the Gaza Strip co- close to the cross close to the Rafa crossing 350 liters of diesel fuel and 500 liters of gasoline which are held by Hamas uh, since the uh, uh, war started Hamas has been telling the media that there is only enough for 24 hours but that's a, that's an outright lie uh, as food, no food Shortage is is, uh, recorded and it's not expected in the near future. Food supplies in markets and private storage still exist activities at bakeries are directly affected by Hamas control and so the same applies also for fuel for hospitals. They are rationing the fuel for hospitals and doctors don't even know if they have enough for the next 24 hours because Hamas will not supply them with the fuel that they know they Hamas holds. Okay but so certain, Hamas,
0: e- even if there are those yeah. liters of fuel in there uh, w- when the World Health Organization was able to get uh, 34,000 liters I believe it was of fuel in the other day that's enough for three hospitals for 24 hours and and ambulances for that period of time. So we've had the World Health Organization on, the United Nations, the World Food Program, Doctors Without Borders, and and they speak to a crisis inside there. And and they are calling. It's not Hamas. It's these aid groups calling for this, fuel in particular. It it sounds from your answer that you're not prepared to do this at all. Am am I understanding that correctly? Because you believe Hamas has what it needs to help the civilians of of Gaza? No? No
3: no there are two things here one is what is what are the supplies in the gaza strip the information that is published is wrong it needs to be verified by checking the facts that's what i'm saying that's one according to our facts and we have people who can check this for us on the ground who are not israelis and can verify that there are hundreds of thousands of liters of gasoline and diesel in the gaza Strip. that's one thing the other thing is the policy israel's policy is to act in accordance with international law, which means that we facilitate the provision of assistance and aid, humanitarian aid, to an area that is involved in this armed conflict, provided that this aid does not support our uh, uh, enemies, which are the terrorists, and we don't know that because we know that they confiscate much of the aid, and that it does not, and it is intended to uh, support the people who, that are, it, it's in it, it is intended for so therefore we are working as diligently and as hard as we can to verify that but once we are at war and we know that hamas is trying to are trying to hide themselves amongst the population it's a very complicated task
0: no and i I can appreciate your security concerns and the challenges faced on verification inside uh, the gaza strip but is fuel a a non-starter right now sir because uh We've spoken to doctors and aid groups who say, you know, the incubators and the ventilators at hospitals uh, are are going to go off soon uh, because we have no electricity. and and, and I don't know if the international community can count on Hamas, which is a designated terrorist organization in this country, to be reasonable. I think they're looking to Israel to be humane. So, is fuel something you can allow in, conceivably?
3: We are. We have supplied fuel for the southern part of Gaza directly to in order for them to be able to pump water and to provide water for the broad population there as you may know Israel instructed or advised the population in the northern part to move south because most of the Hamas infrastructure is located in the northern part We made sure that the southern part has enough fuel so that they can pump water for the population because 90% of the population relies on water that is either desalinated from the sea or pumped from underground. Mm -hmm. While, by the way, Israel, you may know, still continues to provide water to the northern part, directly from Israel, at least those pumps, those uh, water systems that were not bombed by Hamas. Uh, So we continue to provide whatever we can to alleviate the conditions of the population, the vast population in the Gaza Strip. We try to keep them out of harm's way and we try to alleviate their conditions because we know how hard this must be. But we also are waging a war, which we want to finish quickly and decisively to eliminate the infrastructure of Hamas, which is, by the way, not just a threat to us, but to the entire world, as Defense Minister uh, Bill Blair just recently said. And I think we have to remember that the 200 hostages held by Hamas in unknown conditions are part of the humanitarian crisis if there is any at the Gaza Strip that is actually the, the, the crisis and the, the fact that this organization continues to perpetrate uh, war crimes as we speak your report mentioned that she saw on the border uh, smoke bombs and active military activity from the Israeli side but she must have also seen the rockets that flew today from the Gaza Strip into Ashkelon, into Netivot, into uh, Netiv sara and other places. This is a continuing war where Hamas is using the population as a human shield. Well, just, and we are we must finish that.
0: Just on the hostages, uh, and and obviously. Uh, uh, Anybody with humanity wants to see their safe release. Uh, and your prime minister said t- tonight or suggested tonight there is the possibility of a breakthrough for the large scale release of hostages being brokered through negotiations with Cotter playing uh, sort of the role as a trusted interlocutor in this. What can you tell us about where that is? I, I mean, do you have a sense on, and if there is a real chance that there could be a breakthrough on the release of hostages at this point?
3: Israel demands the immediate and unconditional release of the hostages. That's the only thing I can say about that. Okay. All the rest are speculations and others, but this has to finish quickly. This has to end immediately. Uh, you've seen the elderly that uh, were released That's a psychological war waged against Israel at the same time as this, uh, as this physical war is waged, and this cannot be tolerated. And the international community should unite against Hamas and against those who are behind Hamas to terminate this once and for all.
0: You you heard President Biden's words that Israel should do everything it can to protect civilians as it prosecutes its war against Hamas and exercises its right to defend itself. I, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but there were difficult images on Al Jazeera today of, of a journalist for Al Jazeera whose, whose family was killed in a missile strike uh, and they were in a refugee camp after vacating to start moving south uh, as the IDF has urged people inside Gaza to do. Did your military strike a refugee camp inside Gaza today? What can you do you know if that was an Israeli missile?
3: I know that Hamas does everything to put civilians in harm's way. So I would speculate that there would be another uh, incredibly uh, dire uh, sinister trick uh, by Hamas. But I, I, I must tell you that in this war where uh, civilians are hurt, we must remember that 1,400 people were slaughtered by Hamas systematically and deliberately. I don't know if you've played this uh, sound of one of the Hamas... Terrorist calling his parents from an Israeli mobile of somebody he killed, boasting that he has their blood of 10 Israelis on his hands that he just killed. And his parents tell him, that's wonderful, that's great, just keep well, continue. So in this war, in this horrible war that was forced on us, we are doing everything we can to keep those who are not involved out of harm's way. There are victims, but when we are considering where we strike and how we strike, we respect very, very much the rules of international law, international humanitarian law, the rules of uh, the law of, of uh, conflict armed conflict against a player who they have no regret no regards whatsoever to international law, none whatsoever. So they will do everything they can to have more and more people, civilians that are not involved, get hurt by anything. And when we know that people were killed by Palestinian Islamic Jihad rockets in a parking next to a hospital, I would have to doubt very much what was the cause of what you were describing just
4: now.
0: Okay, and and I have seen the video you speak of. I've seen a lot of uh, very difficult videos uh, in in the last couple of weeks. Um, Just as a final point, uh, your prime minister uh, said today that Israel is preparing for a ground invasion. There are reports in in various international media that Israel is holding off to allow the U.S. to fortify its military uh, uh, bases in the region. Is this correct, sir? And what does this say about the risk of this spiraling into a larger regional conflict if the Americans feel the need to up their protection?
3: Well, we know from the outset that Iran is behind this uh, hyenas attack and that they are very much in their desire is to uh, broaden this conflict and to escalate it. The president of Iran mentioned just the other day that they might instruct It's just, that's the way he used it, the word he used, instruct Hezbollah to enter this conflict uh, militarily. And you know that there are already uh, some um, clashes with Hezbollah in the north. There there have been several provocations by Hezbollah in the north. And so when we look at the bigger picture, we see that Iran is the player behind it. So anyone who wants to have, uh, to restore stability and peace in the Middle East, would be wise in taking acts actions that deter others from com- making this more complicated.
0: Ido Moed, Israel's ambassador to Canada, thank you again for your time tonight, sir. Thank you, David. The United Nations Secretary-General is trying to set the record straight about comments he made on the humanitarian situation in Gaza.
3: I am shocked by the misrepresentations by some of my statement yesterday in the Security Council as if if I was justifying acts of terror by Hamas. This is false. It was the opposite. Indeed, I spoke of the grievances of the Palestinian people. And in doing so, I also clearly stated, and I quote, but the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas. End quote.
0: This comes after Israel took offense from Antonio Guterres's comments and called for his resignation. The country also said it will stop issuing visas to UN personnel to quote teach them a lesson. Francesca Albanese is the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the occupied Palestinian territories, and she joins me now. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, David. Uh, clearly, this is a time where delicate diplomacy uh, is of utmost importance. Uh, how is this tension between Israel and the UN Secretary General complicating your role as Special Rapporteur in Palestine?
5: Uh, well, my my role as uh, as a Special Rapporteur on the occupied Palestinian territory has always been sensitive. For many years, uh, Israel well Israel doesn't recognize this mandate. And so for many years, nearly six, 16 or 17 years, it has not allowed any, uh, anyone holding this mandate um, to enter the occupied Palestinian territory, although technically, legally, Israel doesn't have the authority to do so um but again it abuse of power it's it's pretty common and standard in the occupied palestinian territory at the hand of the occupying power israel um so is it going to complicate my uh, my work more i do not think so but it's going to have an impact on the un uh, on the U- un as a whole i mean it's 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 uh, it's inconceivable that such a language can be used Against the UN Secretary General because I find he's been extremely balanced and also I mean I've been I've been quite critical in the in the first days of this uh, of this crisis saying you the UN needs to call for ceasefire and even when the Secretary General has done so he, ha- he has always used words of compassion and solidarity with Israeli with Israeli people and and rightly so because they really have been affected in a way that is unprecedented and um, I mean in the in the history of Israel so this everyone was shocked is shocked for what they have endured and are enduring Um, and at the same time I agree with the Secretary General this didn't happen in a vacuum and people like me and my predecessors and the human rights community, both Israeli and Palestinians and others, have warned for years that this was leading the continuous impunity, the continuous violations committed by Israel in the occupied Palestinian territory, were leading left unaddressed would would lead to a disaster, to a catastrophe, and this is exactly what's happening.
0: So so on on this current situation, uh, there is a pretty unanimous call from humanitarian groups uh, around the world uh, of the need for greater access to food, water, medicine, and fuel. There is the rebuttal from Israel and its backers that uh, the security uh, of Israel is, is of profound importance here as well, and that you can't send some of these supplies into Gaza because Hamas will take them and use them and resupply and rearm, and the civil will be no better off. How how do you bridge these seemingly intractable positions in this moment?
5: Well, there are two elements here. First of all, this is the same government than two months ago, three months ago. I mean, there was an Israeli minister who said that Hamas was an asset for Israel, while um, the PA was a liability. This is on record. So, Look, this is very critical and I understand how how threatening has been the attack that that Israel has received from Hamas. This nothing justifies, nothing condones, nothing is to downplay what Hamas has done. At the same time, Israel's self-defense, if this is the argument, is justified to repel the attack. The attack was repelled in... 24, 48 hours. The rockets have to be dealt de- have to be dealt with. No issue. But what's the point of bombarding an entire population? 2.2 million people, half of whom are children. And there are already six thousand, almost six thousand people who have been killed in this war alone. How is this going to bring more security for the Israelis? And how is it ever legal to kill so many civilians, to destroy 42% of the housing infrastructure, to bomb hospitals, schools, markets, to level entire residential areas? And let me say something concerning the humanitarian aid, and thank you for raising this important concept. The, I mean, intentionally starving a population. W- who's already who's been under an unlawful blockade for 16 years because let's not forget the occupation had turned uh, Gaza into a blockade uh, since 2007 and in it tightening it increasing the, the the restriction can be can amount to a war crime uh, sorry sorry to a crime against humanity it's already a war crime as a collective punishment and can be if proven intentional and it 's intentional according to israeli leaders it 's a, it's a crimes against humanity uh, it 's extremely serious
0: so, so to go back to your point that they had repelled the attackers um, you know in the early days of this, and, and, and please do not take this question as in any way minimizing what is happening to civilians in, in Gaza that mm-hmm. is a, a tragedy, and so on. Israel would argue the threat is not neutralized, it is merely repelled. you know that the, so, so, the, so the Hamas Hamas went back inside Gaza to its tunnels and to its systems, but they're still there and it could happen again. A- and its stated intention is to make take action so that it never happens again. So how, how do we... Th- th- this whole thing challenges us in many ways, right? So how do we balance this, you know, with uh, Israel's desire for security of its people uh, versus what's happening?
5: Um- I'm, I'm very fine. I'm very fine with the question, but I have to correct you on one thing. Sure. Killing a soldier or killing a combatant is a tragedy. Killing civilians is a crime and is a war crime, and this is to be very, very clear. Now, the declared objective has not been to dismantle to dismantle Hamas's military capacity. Which is a, mili- a very specific military target, mm-hmm. and, and therefore, you know, when you invoke Article 51 of the um, UN Security Council, you need to present a, a plan on how you intend to use your self-defense. What Israel is doing is much broader than self-defense, because on the one hand, all the Palestinians in Gaza have been called the human animals. They have all been associated with what Hamas is doing, and they are being punished for what Hamas has done. So first of all, what's happening is in violation of all principles of international law, distinction, proportionality, and precaution. So, but then also, what, how? How is Hamas which has a military wing, but it's also a a, a political entity how is it going to be eradicated or annihilated yeah. this is something that should be asked to the israelis because what they are doing right now is they are killing civilians i'm sorry this is more this is more than than a tragedy and there are 800 um uh, renowned scholars who have raised the alarm saying like 2000 lives ago meaning when the when the death toll had, uh, had reached 3000 or 4000 they said this can be genocide, and it's very serious, and it has never been used with such a strength, and signed, this letter was signed by, by 800 scholars. It's very serious what's going on in, in, in Gaza, and I'm shocked, as a special rapporteur, I'm shocked that a ceasefire has not been declared yet.
0: Well, the... the, 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 there, po- the Un- Sorry, I was going to say the push now, uh, started by the U.S. I think in some ways is for what they call humanitarian pauses, right? Temporary stops in the fighting so aid can get in, though it is unclear to me uh, how how likely uh, that is to happen uh, quickly enough for the aid to get in at scale. Right, certainly, given what's going on, but but I just wonder, as a final point, in, in your position, given the deteriorating relationship between the United Nations writ large and, and and the government of Israel right now, what do you want to see the UN do next uh, to, to to get to this point where some sort of humanitarian relief can happen?
5: Look, it's very. Uh, I understand the sensitivities, but here we need to rise above emotions, and and, and this is what the UN should be doing. Um, strong words have been used, um, but I think that the UN remains responsible under the UN Charter to ensure peace and security. And, and again, I think it's very important what the Secretary General said. I mean, nothing justifies what Hamas has done, the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot amount to this, and I think that there is no way that the Palestinian people and the grievances of the Palestinian people should be associated with it, because the Palestinians have been protesting peacefully and embracing peaceful resistance, meaning non-armed resistance, for 20, 30 years now. And nothing has come to them. It doesn't matter. They continue to engage, most of them, in in peaceful resistance. So the role of the UN should be to maintain peace and, and security, to ensure peace and security. And what Israel is doing is exactly threatening peace and security in the region. Because all of a sudden, all Arab countries are getting in, inflamed by, on, there is on the one hand, the shock of the people who see the Palestinians being massacred. And there are also Israelis who have been massacred this time, and so this is unacceptable. But also there is there is a very violent rhetoric being used, which is extremely dehumanizing and resonates with right. people in the region, and also threats posed to other countries in the region. So it risks to escalate in a very serious fashion. So I think this is time to consider some coercive measures to, okay. to calm down and to de-escalate the situation.
0: Uh, We are out of time, but I want to thank you for your time. Francesca Albanese, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Occupied Palestinian Territories. Thanks for speaking with us today.
5: Thank you, David. Thank you.
0: Bye. Well, still with this, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu addressed his nation earlier today. He warned that Israel is in a battle for its existence and that the country is preparing for a ground operation into Gaza. He did not confirm when the expected incursion is set to happen. This comes as airstrikes continue across borders in the Israel-Hamas war. The destruction has displaced more than half of Gaza's 2 million residents, according to the United Nations, and it says almost 600,000 of those displaced are crowded into U.N. shelters. This as food, fuel, and water supplies run low. Michael Knights is a fellow at the Washington Institute specializing in the military and security affairs of Iraq, Iran, and the Persian Gulf states. He joins us now to discuss what we can expect from a ground incursion into Gaza. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. We've heard from Prime Minister Netanyahu saying they still intend to do a a ground invasion of some sort into Gaza. What is the Israel Defense Forces up against once they do that?
6: Well, they're up against one of the most dense urban environments in the world, with the additional complication of both tall buildings and substantial subterranean cave systems underneath the city, which Gaza has used, uh, which Hamas has used uh, to hide its uh, troops and its equipment.
0: We've seen urban warfare in the recent past in Mosul and in Raqqa and in Fallujah. Uh, Have we ever seen anything? Is there a historic comparison to what we will potentially see once this starts uh, in earnest in Gaza?
6: Well, I guess the closest would be Stalingrad during the Second World War, which is not very encouraging. Uh, But what we do seem to be picking up is that the Israelis are thinking a little harder about how to get at the urban situation in Gaza in a number of smaller bites, rather than one mass invasion.
0: Right, because when you listen to the reaction in the days after October 7th, it it left the world with the impression a a large-scale invasion of Gaza was coming. What would have been the consequences, the human consequences, uh, if that, that initial impression is what comes to pass once the attack begins?
6: Well, if the Israelis had moved in very quickly without a plan, which was the case uh, back in the early days, uh, we would have seen probably very heavy Israeli military casualties as well as very heavy Gazan civilian casualties. Uh, what seems to be happening now is looking at a smarter, slower, partial effort uh, to get at some parts of Gaza City and some parts of Hamas while leaving other parts of the city and the Gaza Strip untouched.
0: And and why do you think that is? Why do you think it's a uh, a, a scaled-down battle plan, potentially, at this point in time?
6: I think the Israelis have realized that they were going to take extremely serious casualties and might even militarily fail if they tried an overly ambitious operation. And the Americans have cautioned them that they need to pay more attention to the humanitarian aspects of the plan. And indeed, what will follow Hamas in terms of governing and securing and reconstructing Gaza after a battle?
0: You talked about the casualties. I mean, the military history is full of examples of, of irregular forces, militias, uh, you know, non-state forces like Hamas dealing with a regular traditional military and it not necessarily going that well for the regular traditional military. And then there's the tunnel system. Just what what are the tactical and strategic implications of Hamas having 15 years to build up its defenses and dig subterranean hideaways and and access points?
6: Well, you know, this was always gonna be a difficult military operation because of the density of Gaza Uh, because of its tall buildings, because of its subterranean systems. Then when you add the hostages in, you get an additional level of complication. So nobody has ever tried an urban operation this complex against this well-prepared an enemy. Uh, That's why I think the Israelis are now prepared to slow down, take a really good look at Gaza and at the Hamas defence, and then slowly cut away some pieces of that Uh, where that can be done without causing too many civilian casualties in the future.
0: When you say slowly, what kind of time frame would we be talking about here? Because an urban military operation, it never goes fast because of, you know, the threat from above in the buildings and below in the tunnels. I mean, uh, what kind of a time frame do you imagine here?
6: Well, in West Mosul, which is similar size to Gaza City, uh, it took 180 days to clear that area so half a year and that was doing it almost as quick as we could with extremely high levels of destruction now let's say the Israelis are not trying to occupy every corner of Gaza City Uh, nonetheless you could still see a careful operation taking six months or more and one of the things the Americans seem to be signaling is that if the Israelis pay more attention to humanitarian and reconstruction issues then the U.S. is willing to support the operation for longer.
0: How do you square that with um, Prime Minister Netanyahu and his war cabinet's stated ambition to eliminate Hamas? I I know you mentioned that they might have faced military failure had they gone all in early. Can they accomplish their stated goal with this reduced um, military plan if that's what they choose to do? In
6: the very emotional days after October the 7th, the Israeli government definitely overreached when it created the expectation that it would be able to completely destroy Hamas. Mm. What it might be able to do, perhaps using a smarter, slower military operation that retains international support, is to prevent Hamas from returning as the governing authority in the Gaza Strip and to replace it with something that, backed by Gulf states and the international community that might stand a chance of ruling Gaza and reconstructing Gaza in Hamas's place.
0: That's a big challenge, of course, right? Who, who would be acceptable to all the players in that and certainly to the Palestinian uh, people themselves? Um, but I want to you. You've mentioned the humanitarian concerns that President Biden has has been repeatedly emphasizing since he went to Jerusalem. Um, we have seen a lot of images coming out from the bombing campaigns and, and you compared said the historical comparison to a full ground invasion of gaza would be m- the historical comparison will be stalingrad there are no cell phones and live streaming in stalingrad I, I mean what do you think the world should prepare to see um once this whatever form it takes the israeli offensive begins in earnest inside gaza itself well, we know from
6: experience of, for instance, the last Gaza invasion that was uh, in 2014 and was 49 days long. Uh, within the Arab world, anger builds and builds. Uh, in the Western audiences, people tend to lose interest and attention after a certain while when the imagery is similar enough. Um, that's just the reality. But in the Arab world, uh, it retains a salience and an urgency even after a month, two months, three months. So we can expect anger within the Arab world to continue to grow.
0: And the risk there, I guess, is that it in the streets of the Arab world inflame to the point that states and other actors decide to intervene. And, and while Western audiences may become numb to it, uh, maybe Western governments lo- pull some of their support for what Israel is doing.
6: That's the concern for Israel, and that's why what we may well see is the Israeli strikes slowing down and becoming more selective and limited ground incursions that have specific objectives, such as destroying certain tunnel systems, Uh, because it's obvious Israel cannot maintain this level of strikes uh, in Gaza without losing Western support after some weeks or months.
0: So, Michael Knights, just as as a final point, what are you watching for next? What should we watch for next in terms of divining uh, what Prime Minister Netanyahu and his cabinet will instruct their military to do?
6: Well, really, Hamas has the next vote. Uh, Once the Israelis go in, uh, we will see whether Hamas executes hostages. That's the grim reality. Uh, If they want to stop a ground incursion, and if perhaps Iran and Lebanese Hezbollah don't want to go to full war to deter that, then Hamas will be looking at its options for stopping the Israelis from coming in.
0: Michael Knights, fellow at the Washington Institute, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. We're not calling for a ceasefire. We understand that Israel has to be able to defend itself under international law and has to be able to take out a terrorist group Hamas that's at its borders. Liberal MP Anthony Housefather speaking on his way into his party's caucus this morning. It's the first time Liberals have met en masse since more than 30 MPs, including 23 Liberals, signed a letter calling on the Prime Minister to call for a ceasefire between Israel and Hamas last Friday. So how could these tensions inside Government Caucus affect Canada's policy? It's time to bring in the Power Panel. Tim Powers is the chair of SUMA Strategies. He joins us uh, remotely. And here with me in Ottawa, Laura D'Angelo is vice president at Enterprise Canada and a former advisor to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Jordan is the Canada Program Manager for the Frederick Ebert Foundation, and Sherelle Evelyn is the Managing Editor of The Hill Times. All right, gang, uh, it, it's been a while since we, we all spoke, so Laura, thanks for coming in. I want to start with you and, and sort of talk about what's happening inside the Liberal Party right now. Um, obviously, ceasefire not on the cards for the party leadership. Humanitarian pauses I, I, is, is the stated position of the government right now. Is that going to satisfy some of the people who signed that letter, you think, on Friday?
7: I mean, probably not is the honest answer. I think this is really complicated and all parties are dealing with this, right? This huge tension between caucus members who just feel have hugely different beliefs. Um, So, no, I don't think it's going to satisfy everyone. But the, the real honest hard answer here is they're innocent people involved in this, and and we need to find a way to get them out and to get aid in. And at this point, if the only way for the government to be able to advocate for that on an international stage is a humanitarian pause, that is the best option on the table for humanity.
0: Yeah, and and Tim, um, I'm not sure how much weight Canada's position actually is going to play in this. It seems like a regional power, great power conflict, but it is in line with where the United States is. And the Conservatives came out today endorsing a pause, or came out yesterday, excuse me, but only if Hamas releases hostages and allows foreign nationals to leave Gaza. What's your sense uh, on the positions being staked out here domestically?
4: well I wish it weren't so driven by domestic politics uh, look uh, Lauras right the the Liberal Party and the, and the new Democrats I think have more complicated uh, waters to navigate and watching the Prime Minister over the last week particularly in response to the initial bombing of the, of the Gaza hospital and taking almost four or five days to come to a position suggests that I mean on this notion of a humanitarian pause I, I guess not unlike the ceasefire David will it really work. I mean, you're not dealing with a nation-state in Hamas. You're dealing with a terrorist organization. Uh, What the conservatives are saying, I think, makes a bit of sense if Hamas will, will will pay attention to it, and that is, again, release the hostages first, but, but who knows? This may all just be oxygen, and this may not be possible, unfortunately, for the people uh, who find themselves as non-combatants in a combat zone.
0: Right, and, and I, I should clarify, because uh, this has been stressed to me by the government, Jordan, is that it's pauses not a singular because a singular pause could be indeterminate it could be a ceasefire there's like shut it down for 24 hours let a go in and you know however it would work out i don't know if it's going to work out the new democrats have been grappling with this uh, in in their own way at the federal and, and provincial levels uh jagmeet singh has advocated a ceasefire but we haven't seen a lot of jagmeet singh this week at least in terms of access to reporters what do you think is going on with the new democrats there
8: Well, you know, I mean, I I think there's no question this issue is challenging for new Democrats. It it always has been. You have people who feel very, very strongly about this on on both sides and a lot of people within the party who have a lifelong record of advocating for Palestinian rights. And so it's a challenging context. But, you know, for, for Singh, I think we saw him coming out Early on condemning the attacks and uh, also of course moving the the party on a position on ceasefire and they've they've held that ground I mean he was this week he was in question period he was out uh, writing the letter to the Prime Minister about uh, calling for that meeting of leaders so I don't think he's been absent on it I think he's out there and he's restating his position pretty clearly but yeah there's no question this is a human issue for politicians just like it is for people across the country people have family members impacted they've got family members in the region Region. and uh, the toll of seeing this amount of death and destruction is uh, is huge.
0: Uh, I, I'm being told, by the way, by a source that uh, that meeting with leaders should happen tomorrow. Uh, there's an invitation gone out for the meeting to happen in the morning, there may have to be some wiggling around because of scheduling, but Sherelle, it sounds like the leaders will meet tomorrow to get an update uh, on the Israel-Hamas situation from the Canadian perspective. The Liberal caucus also met today, just to circle back to that. Uh, There's some talk of it getting a little bit tense in there. Um, In particular, the way this letter was done on Friday, not people who wouldn't sign it, but people who didn't know about it, and maybe Muslim MPs themselves or have a large uh, Palestinian or Muslim population in the riding went home, and they're asked, why didn't you sign this letter? And they didn't know about it, and they're mad with the way the whole thing was done. So it's a challenging issue just on managing personalities as well.
9: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's something that's, I mean, uh, my colleague, Neil Moss, he wrote about that in that same idea in, in our paper today, you know, talking about, obviously within caucus, you just playing out as you see it across the country, you know, different groups, different writings, different constituents, they have different, um, whether it's belief systems, whether it's, um, you know, desires of one how they want to see things play out, um, different backgrounds. Um, and, but what it could also speak to is the fact that you there could be a bit of a a breakdown within caucus when it comes to inter-caucus relations and inter-caucus communications. If people feel like they aren't being heard by each other, they're not being heard by leadership, they're going to say, okay, you know what, fine, we're going to take our own way, we're going to blaze our own path, and we're just going to speak directly to the Canadian public. And yes, it's a letter to the Prime Minister, but it's also a letter to the rest of of the nation saying this is what we believe. And because we don't feel as though we're being heard, we want to, you know, step around the loudest voices that are maybe taking up a little bit more of the airtime and saying, you know, this is yep. what we actually think. And, and it is unfortunate that, you know, other people may not have felt, in, you know, included or what have you, but um, I think that just speaks to the fact that there are those dividing lines within caucus and if people can't speak to one another, then it's going to play out in a more public forum.
0: Yes, a, a letter to the Prime Minister, but one that was released publicly right away. <laughs> and then the authors came on this show and others to talk about it. So, Laura, just just to wrap up on this, I mean, th- th- there is obviously clear uh, social divisions in this in, in Canada and those fault lines just rip right right through the liberal caucus. So how does the caucus, uh, you know, at an MP level and the party at a leadership level have to navigate that uh, to stop it from becoming a real problem?
7: It's, it's such a complicated question. I know that there was a meeting last week among yep. Jewish caucus members and, and Muslim caucus members, and it was actually a dialogue. It sounds like that's still continuing. Um, but to your point, I, I don't know is the real answer. This is such a a really challenging answer. I think we're all dealing with this on a personal level, and so I truly feel for MPs who have to deal with it on a personal level, on a collegial level with their colleagues, and then leadership who has to deal with this from a government perspective and also a cohesion perspective.
0: Okay, I want to switch to another topic that is purely domestic, and that's Ontario's finance minister wants an urgent meeting to talk about Alberta's plan to pull out of the Canada pension plan. Our government firmly supports the Canada Pension Plan, and we believe Alberta's proposal could cause serious harm over the long term to working people and retirees in Ontario and across Canada. So Alberta's Finance Minister, Nate Horner, responded with his own letter saying, Sure, let's meet in Calgary. And by the way, we also want to talk about equalization, fiscal stabilization, and the carbon tax. The Prime Minister also weighed in today.
2: I've heard from many provinces that are really concerned, and the idea that uh, that Alberta might uh, not just uh, make uh, their own pensioners poorer by pulling out, but uh, impact Canadians from coast to coast is uh, coast to coast to coast is not something that um, most Albertans would want, let alone most Canadians.
0: Okay, just in the past hour or so, Finance Minister Christian Freeland says a meeting on the CPP will happen, but didn't give a date for that meeting. So, so Tim, let, let, let's start with you. I mean, Alberta still wants to go ahead with this. Daniel Smith seems committed to this, wants to hold a referendum on it. How big of a potential simmering issue is this? I mean, Andrew Fury, the, the Premier of our home, has also written saying this would be punitive for people in smaller provinces with older populations. Where does this one go?
4: Well, it goes to nowhere good. I mean, this is a case where Danielle Smith, again, looking to distract from some of the challenges she's had at home, is trying to create this war with Ottawa and, in turn, Canada. Though I'm sure she was hoping she'd get a bit more allied ship, and she's got none, David. I mean... Good for Peter Beth and Falby. good for Ontario to come out and say that this doesn't work. I don't know how Alberta math works. I mean, it's going to be incumbent upon the the premiers, the other premiers and the prime minister, not to give Daniel Smith too much oxygen. Don't give her the fight that she wants, while at the same time uh, encouraging the people of Alberta to call her out for the wrong-headedness of this proposal and the financial weakness it would bring for forward to them so it's it's not a a dance that is easily done, because uh, you don't want to have the rest of Canada beating up on Alberta, but you do also want to call Alberta out, and in particular Premier right. Smith, not the people of Alberta, for getting this idea so very
0: wrong. Sherelle, uh, uh, Daniel Smith seems to have done the impossible in some ways. She's put Pierre Polyev and Justin Trudeau on the same side of an issue, who that <laughs> yeah. involves. And Andrew and, and, and
4: Rachel Notley. And yeah, yeah a-
0: exactly. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, politically, I mean, assuming this meeting of finance minister happens, I've not seen a finance minister from another province say, you know, Alberta's on something here. Have 55% of the assets. How does this play out, do you think?
9: Oh well, yeah, you've got like you said, Pierre Polyev's has come out and said, you know what, this isn't really going to fly, and he doesn't really have a lot to lose in Alberta on that issue, because Albertans, from what we've seen so far, aren't super keen on this. I think Danielle Smith was probably banking on there being more of I don't know, a sense of Albertaness and like some sort of pro- swide of provincial a uh, swell of provincial pride, um, and that's not happening. Uh, so kind of doing the us versus everybody thing isn't working. Whether we're doesn't want to lose those votes is in places like Ontario and if everybody else is saying hey this is going to be bad for the rest of the country there's no there's no way for him to win by siding with Alberta mm-hmm. you know it's it, lots of times that where Alberta goes other provinces are very quick to follow you know it's, it, I'm with the finance minister's letter saying let's talk about all these other things that I know other people have gripes with um, might they might be thinking that's a way in I but because this idea of the, the pension plan is the driving force, I don't think it's going to move the needle.
0: Yeah, Jordan, it, it, it has the potential, as Tim said, though, to look like, you know, nine provinces and three territories lining up against Alberta with the federal government there convening the meeting. Right. So there is a there is a political risk there as well, right?
8: Sure, and I think, I think Justin Trudeau in particular, in his, his own personality, as he's often characterized in Alberta, has to be cautious about how he approaches that fight. Um, he's a polarizing figure, and in many ways, there's a potential that he could give her the fight that she's looking for, and I mm-hmm. think that would be a bit of a mistake. But it's really interesting. What she's managed to do here is unite her friends and her enemies against her. Um, you know, Polyev, Ford, the Ford government, which has been really, really friendly, to uh, to to her, to her government uh, over the years, and and to have them on opposite side, or have them all on the opposing side, is pretty telling. And and the other thing I think to remember is that it's not it's not really it's not just other provinces, of course, that have a problem with this. It. It's also the people of Alberta. So the the Alberta NDP is out there doing, of course, their own consultations and town halls, and they're getting ninety percent opposed. You know, this yeah. is really. I think there was a bet made that over time she would be able to win over Albertans to this idea, but it actually, it looks like the opposite is happening and attitudes are really hardening against it. So I won't be surprised if she's in no rush to actually get to a referendum on it.
0: Uh, Laura, my undergraduate degree in literature and history does not qualify me to do an (laughs) actuarial assessment of the CPP fund, Uh, but I did notice how the Liberals perked right up uh, with this and and saw it as an opportunity to kind of jam Paulyev a little bit because, to Shirelle's point, they want to fight this issue, not in Alberta, but in the suburbs of Ontario <laughs> and those sorts of things. I, I mean, how do you think they're going to they're going to play this going forward? Do you think Freeland has a meeting and has it in Calgary, as, as May Horner says?
7: <laughs> I don't know if she has it in Calgary, but she <laughs> definitely has a meeting um, for sure. Can bring I, the popcorn. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, And, I mean, some of the numbers I'm hearing thrown around from the government is that if every province used Danielle Smith's math on this, it would equal nine times what the current CPP is valued at. So... I think that they are going to use that number, they're going to wedge as hard as they possibly can, particularly in Ontario, but to your point with Pierre Polyev, there's no, there's no fight for them in Alberta. Right, the fight, exactly. The fight is in the 905, right? The fight is in small provinces like Newfoundland, and that's where they're going to bring it, and I think that for them to be able to get Pierre Polyev to have to say things that are really difficult for him in Alberta or re- things that are really difficult for him in Ontario is going to be exactly where they go.
0: Yeah, no disrespect to George Shahal and Randy Blossom, no, I think it really is more about the 100-plus uh, the, the yeah. seats uh, in Ontario. All right, gang, uh, we're out of time. We've got to leave it there. Thank you. It, it's, it's been too long since we've had you, so it's good to have you all back. Uh, my thanks to the power panel, uh, Sherelle Evelyn, Jordan Leichnitz, uh, Laura D'Angelo, and Tim Powers. That's it for today. If you like this episode, please follow the pod and catch our next live show on CBC News Network. We're on weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. I'm David Cochran. Thanks for listening.